The following program is brought to you by the 511 Media Group. This program is available on iTunes, Spotify, the 511 Media Group YouTube channel, and 511mediagroup.com. Welcome back to The Journey, Small Business Success Stories podcast. My name is Richard Anderson, and my guest today is Matt Wilhelmy. He's an entrepreneur, he's a speaker, and author of Taboo Business Questions. Matt and I will discuss his journey to becoming an entrepreneur, how to navigate the current entrepreneurial landscape, and we'll touch on some aspects of his book that may help in that process. So grab a notepad, get comfortable, and let's go on the journey together. Hi, Matt. Welcome to The Journey. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, you and I first met each other several years ago uh, on the basketball court. And we did. we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the years. And I reached out about a year ago to see about having you on the podcast. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And we paused the podcast. So uh, when uh, my production staff talked about uh, relaunching the podcast... I told them that I wanted to have you back on the podcast on the podcast and we set up our guest list. I reached back out and you accepted. I'm glad you were able to join us. I think our audience will find a lot of value in what you bring to the table. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. So pandemic kind of changed a lot of different people's plans for 2020. I think it did. Um, we, we being a small part of it. Um, so that said, tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you grow up? How big is your family? What are your what were your hobbies and your interests growing up? Uh, you know, from a small child to to college. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in uh, in Algonquin. Um, my mom and my stepdad pretty much raised me, and um, I got to see how small businesses work from the perspective of a child. My stepdad working for his dad in a uh, small business. They were handymen, painters, contractor types. So, um, you know, very blue collar, but very hardworking. So I got to kind of see like, you know, the benefits of some of that with my stepdad's dad, um, being the owner of the company, you know, he lived in a nice house, um, took the grandkids on a vacation every year or so. Um, and I just saw, you know, my dad working his butt off and helping build this business. Um, not to uh, bring the energies down too much, but my mom got cancer when I was 16. And um, that really kind of changed my outlook on life um, and really kind of reminded me how precious time is. So um, when I was in high school, I really, um, you know, kicked my own ass and, and got uh, really good grades. I'm not really the smartest guy in the room, but I, I studied my butt off and um, was able to get pretty good grades. So from that, you know, working at um, like a retail store, like a lot of high school kids to kind of get some experience, um, went straight from working retail to working in the banking world right after high school. So um, I had applied to a couple different colleges. My mom battling cancer still, didn't really want to leave the area. Um, so ended up working at Chase Bank. They um, hired me when I was 19. And um, having to take this aptitude test, which is kind of crazy to think about, but 
they um, had never hired somebody without a high school diploma or a um, college degree, rather, excuse me, um, especially at 19 to do, you know, banking and be a personal banker and all that. But that was kind of my my uh, first career and corporate job where I got to really see small business owners from that perspective of the banking world and lending and credit cards. And um, that really opened my eyes to how much I could help small business owners because so many people that came into Chase, and I think this is still true, not, it's not really just Chase's fault, but a lot of people really don't know that much about banking when it comes to how the bank works in their business. You know, they just, they, there's almost like a, a lack of education from the banking world to small business owners. And, um, you know, through a, a series of a number of uh, different events, um, which we can dive into, uh, left the banking world and started um, consulting when I was 23. And, um, I've been doing it ever since. So, you know, kind of fast forward, I'm 33 now. So that was 10 years ago. Uh, my 20s were uh, kind of a blur, but I managed to write a book. Um, I started a small family. I've got two young kids. Um, I got divorced a couple of years ago. And through those events, really kind of pushed me to focus on building my business in a way that I never have. Providing outsourced CFO services, which is really the core of strategic voyages, is uh, a very tricky skill to offer because I have to be able to speak to clients and understand what their business is doing and relate to them and understand their struggle. I talk to bankers and lenders and um, loan officers and have to understand and be able to speak their language, which is very, very different. And then I also talk with CPAs and accountants and bookkeepers to basically bring all of those conversations together and allow my customers to get financing, get their books fixed, get their taxes done, um, really anything they have to do with their finances, my, my company acts as a one-stop shop for them. Um, and so that's the, kind of the evolution of um, how I got to where I'm at. So you mentioned that your stepdad worked for his father's, I believe it's paint remodeling business when you grew up. Um, did you have any inkling at that time that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, even at that age? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did. I, I mean, my parents probably thought it was cute, but I um, bought and sold Pokemon cards um, when I was in my, you know, really younger years. I think up until I was maybe 10 or 11, I was still playing with Pokemon cards, but I, I was buying them and selling them like a business. Um, and then, you know, when I wanted to join the soccer team, my parents didn't have a lot of money. So, or maybe they did and they just wanted me to work for it. I, you know, I don't know, but they basically said, Matt, you know, go to Costco, here's, you know, 50 bucks, go buy some candy and go knock on doors and sell the candy for a little bit more than you bought it for. And, you know, if you can get this $50 and turn it into $150, then you'll have enough to pay us back and you can have the hundred dollars to buy shoes for your soccer team. So that was, you know, 11 or 12. Um, really kind of opened my eyes to how to do that. Um, so I, I took my box of candy and went door to door and sold it all in an afternoon and got really cool soccer shoes for my, my team. Um, and that was, that again, kind of opened my eyes to how it all works with being able to, um, you know, buy a, a product or perform a service, you know, providing like door to door service basically, but also being able to sell and talk to people. Um, all of those different skills were, were kind of, uh, harnessed in that, in that upbringing. 
Back when I was growing up, maybe back when you were growing up, entrepreneur had a different connotation than it does now. Back then, it was family business. You worked for your parents. It was a guy who, you know, just kind of kind of did his own thing. And now it's kind of glorified. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. So back then, how did you view your dad, your, your stepdad, rather, his father? Did you see them as hardworking? Did you ever get to see them? Were they always gone? How did you view that, that um, image of an entrepreneur back when you were growing yeah, up? They were, um, they were the hardest working people I've ever met. And they still are. Um, when I was growing up in these times we're talking about, I think, you know, between ages of like five and probably 15 or so, my dad was busting his butt. Um, you know, he'd work 50, 60 hours a week doing backbreaking manual labor. Um, if you want to make some extra money, he would do side jobs on the evenings or on the weekends. And um, he was always gone, but I knew that he was always working. Um, and it wasn't really easy work. Um, I remember him joking with me a few times. Uh, he'd bring me with, and I, you know, I'd really just kind of be there to help clean up. I didn't really do too much, but he would say things like, Matt, you know, if you don't like doing manual labor, this is a good reminder that you need to go to college because if you don't go to college, there's not too much else you can do other than learning a skill. And, um, you know, today I've, I've helped so many business owners. I know that's not hundred percent true. But it definitely motivated me because I did not want to do manual labor. It's just not, uh, I don't know, it's not for me. I can't, my body can't handle it. It's actually a really good segue because my next question is, out of college, you took a job as a business consultant. Uh, one of the jobs after college is your uh, time with a, uh, IA Business Advisors. Take us through what it meant to be a business consultant when you started. Um, and how did that job prepare you to be an entrepreneur now? Sure. Um, yeah. So IA Business Advisors is owned by a gentleman named Brian Smith. Um, Brian and I worked together um, at IA for quite a while. Um, I learned a lot about different um, ways to structure contracts or proposals or business deals. Or he um, just taught me so much about the different types of businesses that are out there and how to present value. So working with him was great. It really opened my eyes to all of the multitude of possibilities for a service offering. And um, anyway, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, I actually took a pretty untraditional route in my education. So I talked a little bit about going to Chase and working there right after high school. While I was working at Chase, I was getting my associate's degree. It took me four years to get a two-year associate's degree, uh, just with the pace I was on. So, um, and then I took a few years off. Um, I got married and um, had a, a small child at home, my oldest daughter, Kira, um, and then decided to go to Judson University one Monday night a week um, to get to finish my education with, with the bachelor's. So I ended up getting my bachelor's degree when I was about, I think I graduated when I was 28. And um, the whole time I was going to school at Judson, I was working at IA Business Advisors as well. So... Um, for me, that was great because I, I got the chance to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week um, at a consulting company, learning all of these things about business. And then I would go to school at night and study at night and learn more about business from a very technical standpoint, um, kind of with my nose buried in, in my books. And then Friday nights and Saturday nights, if, if you're keeping track of the timeline, I'm still, you know, my mid 20s, Friday nights and Saturdays and Sundays, I would write in the book. Um, 
and journal and, and really kind of perfect that. So um, that was my, my history, but I think working with IA really kind of, um, like I said, opened my eyes to all the different types of businesses that are out there. I learned how to uh, talk to business owners in a different way, have a little bit of ownership and mentality. And then that ultimately helped me to launch full-time into what I do now, which is running strategic voyages and um, own my own consulting company. 70% of all business, uh, small businesses are owned by sole proprietors. And so I think your story can connect with people on a level that they'll understand because they've got maybe a job that they're working. They've got kids, family, responsibilities, and then they're trying to start whatever business they're trying to get off the ground, become an entrepreneur, better their family, better their life. Sounds like you were doing the same thing. What challenges during that period of time can you can you give us that maybe stood out to you as far as, wow, this is a lot of work. Is it really worth it? I'm going to school. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to raise a family. I mean, it had to be at that point a little a little much at times. Um, did you ever get discouraged? What What got you through the process? Uh, take us through that. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, there was a period of like maybe the four years or three years, somewhere between three and four years while I was going to Judson that was the hardest four years of my life. Um, yeah, so I didn't sleep very much. Um, I was certainly stressed out all the time. Um, I didn't take care of my body. I wasn't working out and eating right like I should have been. Um, I didn't really spend a lot of time with my wife at the time. So we ended up getting divorced. And I look back on that as an unfortunate event, but also a positive in that I think that we're both better off apart, which is maybe controversial and not really the point of what we're supposed to be discussing, but it, it was kind of the net result of a lot of things was I got divorced. Um, the opportunity with IA business advisors had run its course and those things actually uh, occurred or finalized the divorce and the separation with IA business advisors um, and the death of my mom, all three of those within the same 12 months. So it was a rough time um, to be really transparent. I was really, really broke when I got divorced. Um, just trying to uh, start a family and my um, ex-wife, wife at the time, wasn't working. Um, we had two small kids. Um, it was tough. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Really so don't, know I think a I lot of people it, can. I, I think a lot of people can relate to that, though, Matt, because that's what they, that, that's the struggle that a lot of our, people who want to be an entrepreneur don't see. They see the, they see the positive, you know, again, and, and I say this a lot, you know, you see that, that inspirational picture where you have the glacier above the water, but they don't, people don't see what's beneath that. They don't see all the hard work that went into getting to the top of that peak. And your story mirrors a lot of people's story, um, much of my own story where you kind of had to hit bottom before you got back up, got off the mat, did what you needed to do to succeed. And I think it helps those individuals in a, in a kind of yeah. a strange way that well, so you had to go through that to be where you are today. I had to, for sure. You know, Rich, I, um, yeah, I'll just be really, really transparent with you and with your listeners. Um, going through that divorce was tough. Um, having the opportunity with IA Business Advisors transition to 
um, a very different looking uh, business arrangement. Um, and being as broke as I was, was very, very tough. Um, I ended up moving out of the house that I had purchased for my family and uh, moved in with my dad, uh, my father, my biological father, who I didn't really have the best relationship with. Um, I didn't really have very much money, like I said. So uh, in order to pay child support and alimony, I took a credit advance on a credit card for $5,000 um, and basically restarted my life in debt. Um, I didn't have any money. I had really good credit, which I guess is, if anything else that people take away from the story, it's like, do not ever mess up your credit. Like that is the number one thing that if you mess that up, then like you just, you can't get, you can't get out from under it. So anyway, I didn't have, uh, I had great credit. It was like, I think I had like a 780 FICO score, but didn't have any money. So I had to take this credit advance for $5,000. And I remember sitting in my desk thinking about how in the world am I going to find clients to pay not only enough child support and alimony, but to pay for the employees that I wanted to hire, the life that I wanted to live. Um, it was tough. So I spent almost three years um, living with my, my biological father, um, thankfully rent free, um, but really kind of dug myself out of a financial hole that I had dug myself into. On top of that credit advance, I wanted to really restart and rebrand uh, my company. Um, I was publishing my business book. Um, it was a lot all at once. And um, really the only way I can say that financially I got through it was the hustle. And that's where I really would like to focus at least for a second. Like if you don't wake up every morning motivated, you gotta change that. And that doesn't always look like my story. But I knew that if I got comfortable or if I, you know, allowed myself the illusion of, you know, I've got some money, so I don't need to work very hard, then I wouldn't get up and push myself. But for those three years after um, the divorce, um, I must have worked between 80 and 100 hours a week. Um, I would only see my kids a little bit. I didn't really date around. Um, I just, I head down, focused on my business making sales calls, going to presentations, um, being very careful with how much money I spend, um, did not take any stupid high interest rate loans. Um, you know, I was able to pay off all of my debts. And um, that struggle, though, to your point, is what helps me stay motivated. Um, fast forward to today. So I've been um, I'm about five years out of my divorce. Um, no, four years out of my divorce, excuse me. And um, I've got no debt. I have built this great company. Um, I invest in other companies now. Um, I've got a team of employees that work for me. Um, I would say the arrow is pointing up. I still don't think of myself as very like wealthy or rich by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I've been able to build a great team and kind of instill that hunger in them um, so that I don't need to work the 100 hours a week anymore. Now I probably work somewhere around 60 to 70, which is still a lot. But I think social media and in other um, venues, when people see a lifestyle, whether it's, you know, going on vacations or buying houses or, you know, going out for dinner or going to ball games, whatever it is that is like exciting and entertainment, you got to almost wonder like, 
how did they get there and you know what like you don't want to skip the part of the story where they were most likely very broke and figuring out how to build a business like that people kind of skip over that part you mentioned hustle i i think that people confuse hustle with busy busy isn't hustle i think you have to maybe put in two different words dedication determination those might more accurately describe a, a business owner or an entrepreneur getting from scratch to where they are now because you can be busy and not make any progress so you have to be dedicated yeah. and you have to have to be determined like you said every day you get up and if you don't want to be the best that you can be every day and go out and get it for not only for you but for your employees you're probably doing something wrong um yeah so i kind of um I have a philosophy about employees um, and I know this might be controversial, but it is what it is. This is my philosophy. This is not Richard Anderson's uh, philosophy, but mine is that salaried employees um, are taken advantage of or they take advantage of. Uh, it's, it's almost never a great relationship between an employer and an employee who's on salary um, because Inevitably, either the employee feels taken advantage of, like they're not getting paid enough, they're working too many hours, um, they don't get time off, or whatever the, the employee thinks. And then on the flip side, the employer, although probably enjoys the fixed cost of that wage, doesn't ever feel like that employee is working hard enough. Um, it's just a very conflictual um, relationship, and I don't subscribe to that mentality. So. I've got a team of employees. Nobody on my team is a salaried employee. Everybody gets paid per hour because I want to be able to hold everybody accountable for every minute of their day. And if there's a new project that comes up or they, you know, I ask them to work late, they don't have to feel bad if they say no, it just changes their paycheck. And if they say yes, then they know that they get to make more money. It's a very um, happy relationship where on the flip side, if you're on salary, you don't necessarily get some of those benefits. And then to make that even worse, a lot of times salaried employees, and I'm not accusing anyone of this right now, but I've, I've noticed and I've witnessed salaried employees who make busy work to appear busier than they really are. And that to me is a big waste of time but I see it more often than I care to admit, especially when people are asking me to come into their business and fix it now. You know, I'll talk to Susie Q behind the desk or, you know, Joe Bob in the shop or whoever, like the salaried employees who make 30 to 40 to $50,000 a year that have been there for a dozen years or so. I'm not saying they're bad employees, but they get into kind of a groove and they don't ever want to necessarily change the process to make it more efficient because they enjoy the pace they can, you know, work their 40 hours and appear busy and they get some work done, but they're not necessarily as impactful um, as they could be. And so um, to your point about busy and hustle, when I started my company and really kind of dug in, especially with the divorce and everything else, I was not busy. I hustled my ass off. I set a goal every day of how many calls I was going to make, um, what I was going to bill, uh, what projects needed to be done. Um, and it was a checklist of accomplishments. And I think there's a big difference between doing it that way and an employee who shows up and says, yeah, you know, I was here at nine and I, 
I worked till six and um, I went home, but I don't really know what I did all day and might have checked my Facebook for a little bit and, um, you know, didn't really work very hard. I don't know if the business made any money. I don't even know if we're billing for all my work. Um, I don't, I didn't finish these projects my boss wanted, but I don't care. I'm going to get paid anyway and I'm going home. And like, there's a huge difference there, right? Between being busy at work and hustling for results. You know, it's interesting. They, they have a saying that if you're an employee, you trade your time for money. And if you're an entrepreneur, you trade your money for time. So if you look at it from that standpoint, most people who are an employee, they just go through life trading their time for a paycheck and entrepreneurs are willing to trade their money and the risk for then time down the road versus working for 20, 30 years for a company and not really showing anything for it. So, um, I, 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 I agree with you 100% about the employee, um, philosophy that you have, because I was, I was working in an office for many years and I could tell you firsthand the people who are working in the office probably got four hours worth of work done in an eight hour period. And the people who maybe worked from home or had the dedication to get the work done, rather than just sitting around in an office environment, they probably got eight hours worth of work done in four hours. So it all depends on your mindset, your dedication, that sort of thing. Um, I'd like to jump into Strategic Voyages for just a second here. Um, what's the significance of the name? How did you come up with it? Why, why that name? Yeah, um... So the name was very carefully picked. Um, I went through a lot of different iterations of things to call the business, but uh, I had a branding team work with me and helped me kind of come up with the name, Strategic Voyages, come up with the logo, kind of a, a prominent looking sailboat, um, and the color scheme of white, blue, and a little bit of gold. Uh, it was very, very carefully picked. So yes, there's a story. The story is that every entrepreneur is on a journey somewhere. And you'd almost call it a voyage. And as many entrepreneurs know, it's almost never just one voyage. I don't know too many entrepreneurs who start one single business and only have one idea and only ever do one idea. Now, I'm not suggesting that nobody does that, but I think the classic entrepreneur model is starting lots of projects, doing lots of things, doing lots of different exciting adventures. But I think the value that my company brings in being an outsourced CFO is that we are strategic about the guidance that we give. We're very careful with the clients that we work with. Um, I use the word boutique because we do not take on every single client. Um, but the name represents, I think, what entrepreneurs desire in a business consultant, which is somebody who's going to be a strategic uh, partner on their voyage to give them the best advice to not just get them from A to B, but to get them from A to Z in all of their business. So you moved from IA to strategic and you had to cultivate clients. You had mentioned before you basically were starting over. How did you start cultivating new clients? What did you use contacts that you made previously? Did you have to start from scratch? Um, and the second part of that is when you opened your doors and you closed your first client, everybody remembers their first client. What do you remember about the first client that you signed? So it's kind of a two-part question. How did you get them? And do you remember your first client? Yeah, uh, of course I remember my first client. 
Um, so I think um, I was able to land uh, a contract with uh, a client as a partner. So I bought into an entity um, that provides medical um, services and I was able to buy into that. And so I have a little bit of a soft landing. Um, but yes, of course, I remember that first client. From there, though, that wasn't really enough to sustain. It was just one client. I was a very minority partner. I think the contract was like 500 bucks a month. That's not enough to live on. So that didn't really play out long term. But um, anyway, I got a lot more clients when I started hitting the phone, um, specifically calling some of my banker contacts when I had worked at Chase. And I also worked at U.S. Bank. A lot of those people that I worked with went to work at other banks. And I slowly began to expand my network of bankers who heard my story, understood that I was a consultant, that I could assist with different financial things that maybe they couldn't do um, with their clients, and really just started with hitting the phones every week or every couple of weeks on each of these banker contacts. And um, the key, though, and this is one of the strategies that I use with a lot of clients, and when I talk about sales generation, when I was calling these bankers, I never went to them with my hand out looking for a lead. I think that's such a important thing for people to hear is that if you're going to try and build a relationship, especially one where you want to receive something, you need to model the behavior that you want, which is going into the relationship, giving something. Um, other entities call that giver's gain. I think I've, maybe that's trademark. I'm not even sure. Um, but essentially, you're giving them something of value so that they understand that they're supposed to give something of value back. And so what I would give these bankers is an outlet to talk about some of their clients that either they couldn't get a deal done for or give them resources and knowledge in, in the form of blog articles or exposure to new clients with social media marketing. Um, I would really come to them with something of value so they understood what I do. We built our relationship. And then obviously the conversations transitioned into, well, you know, I've got this other client that maybe you could help or, you know, what do you think about this deal? I really became an advisor to the bankers so that I would get more referrals from the bankers. Um, in addition to doing some of that type of marketing, um, I joined a networking group and that met every single week. Um, I really tried to build lots of relationships with the people in that group. Again, giving them lots of value and um, lots of knowledge. Um, and then I would also go to a lot of chamber events. So between hitting the phone, doing the work, building the website, writing blog articles, selling, you know, taboo business question books, um, and doing all this networking, again, I was working like almost 100 hours a week. I was never sitting still. Um, it was always go, go, go. One of the important things for entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs to understand is you, you, you talked about the hustle, you talked about the debt, you know, we talked about the dedication. Um, but in the networking process, you talked about giving versus asking. And I think one of the things that might help people, and this isn't my phrase, I picked it up along the way somewhere. But one of the things that I always talk about when I talk to networking people is the first question I ever ask anyone in a networking meeting is, how can I help you grow your business? And that does one of two things. A, it lowers their guard 
everybody's got their guard up when they're talking to somebody new for the first time. They don't want to give too much information. They, they're they unsure of the relationship. They don't know who this person is. But as soon as you say, how can I help you grow your business, that guard comes completely down. And they're vulnerable, and they start talking to you, and you just start asking questions. And then before you know it, they're telling you all about themselves. You're learning about them. And then you have the opportunity, usually, to give that information back to them. And now you're starting to build a relationship versus just going in and asking. So um, that's the first part of it. The second part of it is once you build that trust with that individual, as you said, they started referring you back out to other individuals. And so now you've gained their trust. They trust that you're going to treat them or their, you know, friend acquaintance referral the same way that you treated them. Um, And I think that's important for young business owners to to note of your point of not just going in for the ask, go in with, you know, an open mind, an open heart, give them, you know, give them value first, and then you'll always get it back. Uh, am, am I wrong with that, Matt? You're always going to get it back. Yeah, you will, you will always get it back. It might not necessarily be in the form of, you know, a, a contract, but in one way or another, I think that people are good natured and especially when they see you modeling the behavior of being interested in them and giving them something of value and finding, you know, the common ground, that reciprocation happens pretty naturally, I think. So now you've started your business. Now you're on your own. What kind of clients were you serving? Um, you don't have to get into specifics to your clients because I know that's, that's confidential, but you know, what types of, what types of clients have you seen over the last, you know, four years or so? What's your typical client look like? Yeah. Um, my typical client is a client who can't necessarily get, can't necessarily walk into a bank and get a loan. And what I mean by that is the service that I offer is a white glove CFO service for clients who have complicated businesses or are a little bit unorthodox in maybe their organizational structure, meaning that it's, not easy for them to go into a bank and get a loan um, or they see value in having kind of somebody else represent them, fix their books, make sure that their accounting is right, making sure that they're keeping track of their KPIs, their key performance indicators, um, perhaps building them a dashboard, implementing some software and ultimately helping them create some structure within their business to be able to manage it better. Um, That's the goal that I have when working with clients. And I think the more I talk to talk to clients, the more the customers start to realize that my services range in scope and in cost dependent upon how much work needs to be done. So just because you own a million dollar business or just because you are starting a business, it doesn't mean that the package is always going to be the same because maybe there's more work to be done on the front end or there's uh, more ongoing work to be done. So anyway, I try really hard to customize everything, every service engagement that I do. But a lot of the clients that I was working with, to answer your question, were um, customers that couldn't get their loan done at whatever bank introduced them to them. And so maybe it was an issue with credit. Maybe it was an issue with their profitability wasn't high enough. Maybe it was an issue of they needed a loan. They were a good company, but that bank just doesn't do that particular type of loan. So talking to these clients, helping them, you know, improve their financial situation, creating a a plan for them, really kind of transitioned them into a very, very bankable, bankable client that lots of banks wanted to lend to. And I just did that process over and over and over again. 
um, been doing it now full time. Like I said, I think about four years, and um, I've probably helped close to a thousand companies um, in those four years in one form or another. Um, you know, fix their financial situation, really improve that what they got going on, and then help them get lending of some type to continue to grow and scale their business. What are some of the things that you implemented early on that helped you get to that successful level of helping a thousand clients? What are some of the things that you said, this is, this is the foundation I want to build my company on. What, what are some <clears throat> of those key indicators? Yeah. Um, probably the biggest one is uh, a topic that I talk about in my book. Um, it, it's the topic of uh, revenue snobbery. It's kind of a term that I created to talk about how when business owners grow, they forget what their business was really built upon when they were starving and hungry and wanted all of their clients to be happy. They get kind of complacent and lazy almost when business owners start to grow. They almost don't remember the little guys. They don't remember the one-offs. They don't remember how important those are to the success of your business. And so I tried really hard to keep that in mind and hire talented people around me who could help maintain those smaller clients, the, the lower revenue contracts to be able to then continue to pursue new clients and get maybe bigger clients while still maintaining those relationships that helped me start the business from the get-go. It was a very interesting um, balancing act over the last couple of years, hiring contractors, um, hiring employees. Um, it's been very um, challenging to, to find good talent but I think today, um, with the team that we have, um, we're in a really good place. So I think that that was the the key to the success there was reminding myself of this revenue snobbery, snobbery thought that I just could not let that happen to me. On the flip side of that, what are some of the things that you might do differently starting your own business now uh, knowing what you, you know, or starting your business then or now, um, knowing what you know now. So what are the things that you may do differently or have done differently or, ha you know, would do differently in your business? Um, yeah, I think um, I would probably um, delegate more. I mean, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a firstborn. I'm a type A personality. Um, delegation is a tough topic for me, right? Like a lot of people it's just hard to delegate. But I think that if I were to do it all over again, I would really focus more on my delegation skills. I think that my team would probably appreciate that more if I um, was better at that. It's not that I don't do it. It's, it's the way in which projects are managed and details are important um, and keeping those um, tasks really to the level that I want them to be. I felt like for a long time I had to do everything. And although that might have been true, um, you really need to be able to delegate to your team. So I remember reading a book uh, a bunch of years back, and I don't remember who wrote it or what the name of the book is, so forgive me. But essentially the point was, the thought I was trying to make was, you have to delegate tasks to your team, even if they're not going to do it as well as you. Even if you know with 100% certainty that they're never going to live up to your expectations, you still have to delegate. Even if they're at 50% as impactful or accurate, let them learn because they have to learn. Your team needs to like have that chance 
to be able to kind of mentally like flex your your muscles a little bit and learn the only way to do that is to take a risk make a mistake learn from the mistake and then get better and if you shortchange that process if you don't allow your team to work hard on projects that are new or challenging and there's no accountability there's no oversight you're not going to actually build a team you're just going to have a, a group of people that are yes men and can't really do anything. You need to be able to empower your team by delegating effectively, having some accountability, and then having that feedback loop of, hey, here's how I wanted it to look. Here's what you produced. Let's make it better next time. That's so important. You know, we tell entrepreneurs that it's okay to fail, that failing is learning, but yet we don't want to do it with our own employees because we're afraid that if they fail, it's going to ruin the company where you really have to think about it the other way. Their failure is actually an opportunity for them to learn. So you can't, they can't be afraid to fail. So you have to empower them to make the decisions and do the job. And if they fail, you know, learn from it. Now, sometimes failures are catastrophic, but, you know, that's where the, the manager steps in or the entrepreneur steps in and the business owner steps in and says, okay, here's some kind of your boundaries. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a CEO once that said, here are your boundaries on the left and the right. You can play within all of these boundaries, and, and we don't care. If you go outside the boundary, we'll rein you back in. If you go outside this boundary, we'll rein you back in. But feel free to play in here, in, in these boundaries. And, and it was really a, a, a freedom for the employees to go out and do their job and not have this cloud hanging over their head that they were going to do something wrong. So I think that's very important. It's a, it's a great point. So I have um, probably the funniest, most frustrating story of building my business to date. Um, that has to do with delegation and the person that I delegated this task to royally messed it up. Um, now looking back on it and I, I never yelled. I never really like freaked out. I just like when I found out what had happened, I kind of laughed. Cause like, what else are you supposed to do? It's already done. There's like, it didn't, there's nothing I can do. It's just like stuff to laugh about it and then learn like, okay, you know, going forward, I guess I need to be a little bit more specific. So what happened was, the first year that I started my business, I had talked to all these bankers. I had done all this networking. I had built a database of people who knew who I am and what I do. And it's not a huge database. It might have been 500 people. But these are 500 people that I really want to get more business from. They like me. They know that I'm professional. They know what I do. Um, we've had conversations of one sort or another. So this list of about 500 people, I wanted to mail a um, Christmas card to. And I didn't want to do the mailer. I just felt like, hey, you know, I, I have the idea. Uh, you know, here's the form letter. I'll sign them all. Can you, you know, employee A, we'll just call them that. Uh, employee A, can you just, like, take these to the post office, stick them all in envelopes, and, like, mail them. Like, thank you. It'd be so helpful. And so, yeah, he's like, yeah, great. I got it. So, you know, a day or two went by, and we're getting kind of close to Christmas. And I'm like, hey, you know, did we, uh, did we ever mail those letters out? And he's like, oh, I forgot. I'll do it right now. Like, oh, man. So, you know, Christmas, December 25th, um, we're having this conversation at, like, the 18th. Like, hey, did you mail these yet? Now, they're not late, but, like, I would like them to go out. So they're not, like, people aren't getting them in the middle of January. But anyway, so this employee went to the post office, mailed everything out. Everything was great. Um, I was like, oh, cool. High five. You did a project. I didn't really have to help you. You know, you knew what you were doing. Um, that's awesome. I get a phone call from somebody on that list 
who said, um, you know, Matt, thanks. Hey, I got your Christmas card. It was really great. Um, but they, they were like almost confused. Like, you know, what, what address is this return address? This is like in like downtown Chicago. They're like, we thought your office was in Geneva, which it is. I said, I don't really know what you're talking about. What do you mean? It was, well, it says, you know, this person's name and then it has like their apartment number and it's in Chicago as the return address. I'm like, Oh my gosh, my employee put his name and his home address in Chicago as the return address for all of my Christmas cards to all these 500 people that I wanted to impress. Now I have some options, right? I can yell at my employee, which I don't know what that would accomplish. Uh, I can laugh about it for a moment because there's not much else to do. I can make an excuse. I can say, you know what? I didn't explicitly tell my employee to make the return address the office, but I chose the, the other path, which is like ask him what the heck happened. And so I asked him about it and I could tell that he had not even considered that that was wrong until I'd asked him about it. Like the look on his face, the blood draining, he's looking at a, you know, I'm looking at a ghost now. He's like, holy shit, I didn't even realize that you would want the office address as the return address. And so I was like, man, like, have you ever done a mailer before for a business? And he's like, no, I'm 19. I've, I've never done that before. I'm like, all right. So you really jacked it up, but, you know, this is a learning exercise. Like, why, what was the thought process behind putting your home address on the return address for these envelopes. Like the envelope's plenty big enough. Like I have, like we could have gotten a stamp if you needed a stamp, like what, what happened here? Anyway, he was like, well, I was just in a hurry. I got nervous. Um, I couldn't remember what the office address was. So I put my home address on there. I'm like, all right. So for now, forever and ever and ever, I will always ask whoever is doing my mailer if they know what my office address is as the return address, just to kind of subtly remind them like, Hey, maybe you need to have, um, you know, the office address as the return address and we don't have that mistake anymore. So, so it it's actually me, a learning experience for you. I never thought that I would have to explain to anyone what the return address would need to be on a business mailer. But I thought that was common you know. sense, Yeah, now you know. but it isn't common sense if you've never done one before. Yeah, I, I always tell people that when my employee makes a mistake, it's still my fault because I either didn't train them, I didn't tell them, I assumed, whatever it is, it's my fault. It still, it falls on me because it's my company, right? So um, that mistake, even though he made it, still fell on you. And so I bet you won't make that mistake again, which I'm sure you won't. Um, but it is a funny story. I, I, you, you can't make that stuff up. Um, I mean, I really, it was the first year of like business Christmas cards. I think, um, we did like a form letter and then like, I did like a little like strategic voyages, uh, coffee coaster. So like each package of the 500 costs some money. I mean, this was like a big mailer. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, what else am I supposed to do? Like it's already done. The mail's already out. So it's no secret. I'm just going to, there's no easy way to transition to this next question. So I'm just going to get into it. Um, it's no secret that the past year has been difficult for a lot of entrepreneurs around the world. Um, you know, with the pandemic, um, a lot of others have strived and thrived um, in the face of adversity. But for those who have struggled and those who have been adversely affected by the pandemic, what are some of the things in your mind that they can do to keep their business heading in a positive direction? 
Sure. Um, yeah, 2020, the year of the uh, the great pandemic or whatever we're going to call it, as history books will eventually show, uh, was a really tough year. I remember sitting in my office in February and one of my associates said, Matt, um, the governor just made an announcement that every business that's not essential needs to close for like two weeks. And I was like, what? Like, I, I literally hadn't even, like, I didn't even know what they were talking about. And they're like, well, it's this coronavirus thing. And I don't know, maybe my head was buried under the sand, but I, it was like the first week of February and I had no idea what they were talking about. Like, I just hadn't even heard of it. So I had to do some quick Googling and I very quickly figured out what was actually going on and um, had to adjust. And I think that's the key to every entrepreneur's success that I know that's successful is their agility. It's the key um, business trait of every successful entrepreneur is how quickly you can adjust to a, to a circumstance. Everybody's agility is different. If you're slow to make decisions, you're going to be slow. You're going to have a slow agility rating. If you belabor your decisions or if you ruminate or if you second guess or if you get stuck in fear um, or this is the way we all, we've always done it so we can't change, those types of thought processes don't usually make long-term successful entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs that I've met over this last 12 months who have been really successful adjusted very quickly. They weren't easy decisions, but they made hard decisions in the face of adversity to remain afloat, to perhaps pivot their business model and really capitalize on an opportunity very quickly. A um, couple of examples. Um, one of the clients that I work with is a restaurant owner who, when this whole pandemic was kind of starting, really kind of freaked out because, you know, they kind of saw their business going away. They're like, wait a minute, like we have to close our business. Where are people going to eat? And they very quickly asked me like, hey, Matt, like our online ordering system is not awesome right now. Can you help us fix this? Um, so I did. I've got a person on my team that, that does apps and does the kind of integration stuff that they needed. And um, we talked about getting them on Grubhub and a couple other uh, e like online uh, fast food sort of um, ordering platforms. And they were able to make an adjustment. It cost them a little bit of money, right? I didn't do all the work for free. The business owner knew they were going to pay for it, but it allowed the business owner to know that that job was going to get done. They could focus on some of the other things like hiring different employees or um, setting up their tents outside their uh, restaurant. But that agility, that foresight and realizing that their online ordering system was not great allowed them to increase their uh, revenue through this pandemic in that platform. You know, their online orders or their, their call-in orders were very low before and now it's, it's going quite well. Um, as well as it could be, because it's very easy to do it online and over the phone. So I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Shut Up and Listen by Tillman Fertitta, but he has a saying in there. Uh, he says, entrepreneurs have to remember two things. First of all, the good times are never going to last, and the bad times will never last either. I'm paraphrasing. So in the pandemic, we have to remember that if we're not, and I'm using your term, agile, and we can't make adjustments on the fly. Um, we're going to business owner is going to go away. But he's also got to remember it's not going to last. 
will eventually come out of this. So you have to do what you have to do to hustle, to use the term we used earlier, to get to the next point where things will get better. And conversely, is if you just thought that, you know, 2018, 2019 was just going to continue forever and be good, you were proven wrong. So you always have to have that, I guess, plan B. The, the, what are you going to do in case of an emergency? You know, pull the glass. <laughs> what are you going to do? And so I'm, I'm assuming companies like yours help people go through that process of what do we do in, in case of an emergency? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if um, anybody was 100% prepared for the pandemic, right? Like that, like if you're going to, you know, be one of the people that tells me that you had this plan all figured out and you knew it was going to happen, I don't, I don't know if I believe you. But an emergency plan, a general emergency plan, for sure. Um, I often work with clients who uh, tell me that they don't need a loan and they don't need lending. And I have this weird conversation of like acknowledging that they're in a great financial position, uh, congratulating them on not needing a line of credit, and then reminding them that they should, that's the exact time to go and apply for a line of credit. Because even if it's a hundred bucks a year or 50 bucks a year, or maybe even no cost a year, just to have it sitting there as an additional safety cushion when you don't need it is the exact time to get it. Um, that's from the financial perspective. But I think, um, you know, the other emergency plans would be like, don't uh, get your business finances so tight on a month to month basis where if you have a, uh, off month, your business is really in a tough spot. You need to be able to sustain um, and have some some flexibility with your spending so that if you do hit a rough patch for a few months, you're not looking at bankruptcy. Um, you know, so I don't know if, like, if it's, you know, maybe having some more flexible staff, if your marketing is more flexible, maybe if your own pay is, is flexible so that you can maybe go without a paycheck for a little while as the owner, uh, which would also conversely mean that your personal finances shouldn't be as tight as I've seen a lot of people keep them. It's just, it's a matter of living within your means um, and, and being able to understand that, Hey, this is a, a thing that we need to get through for a month or two months or six months or a year. And here's the plan. Here's what we're going to cut back on to get there. Let's transition into the book a little bit. Um, I'm going to read a paragraph from your website. And it says, my inspiration to turn these thoughts into an actual book came from meeting my first serial entrepreneur. He had written a book and built a company around it. I remember meeting him and thinking to myself, he's a pretty smart dude. He's a pretty smart dude. I bet I could figure out how to write a book. I actually asked him about this process and how, do, how he did it. His advice, his advice was, just write about anything. You'll start to see patterns and your thoughts will come together, but you just have to write. So my question is, you mentioned several times in your history that you didn't think you were going to write a book. When did you figure out you were just, you weren't just writing a journal and that you made the decision to turn your notes into a book? Um, yeah, probably after I met this person, because I, for the longest time had journals. Um, that was a, um, just something I did kind of cathartically getting my thoughts out and maybe some of my frustrations, um, whether it was working at the bank and having bad managers or, being on a team and, and having people just be bad employees or whatever I was frustrated about, I would journal. And talking to him about 
writing kind of reminded me of one of my classes at Elgin Community College, where I got my associate's degree. Um, it was a creative writing class. And they literally had a process of creating, you know, a story. It doesn't start out as this amazing story. You start out the creative process with literally what he said, which was just write. It doesn't even need to make sense. It doesn't even need to be in sentences. It doesn't even need to be cohesive. Just thoughts on paper in a bundle of words. Do that for like half an hour and then take a break. And that's like the first step. And so I had kind of skipped a few steps because I had already had this journal. But to turn that journal into a book, I needed to rewind the steps to start back at the beginning. So I started to do some wordsmithing and kind of writing out like what I wanted my book to be about or what the point was. And it was just, it was really not cohesive, but it was just a bunch of words. But I found through that process of creative writing and reading through all of my journal entries that... I had these really kind of distinct seven topics, which are now the different chapters of my book. And the whole point is, how can I give entrepreneurs a quick hitting, kind of bullet point by bullet point, do this, if, you, if your problem is this, if your problem is this, do this. And here's the thought process to fix that and have these seven topics and taboo business questions really spelled out. Um, and having all of my journals uh, turned into the stories and the backdrop and some of the lessons learned as kind of the, the process. Um, it, it was an amazing uh, experience and journey, but it took that conversation with that serial entrepreneur um, to figure out, you know, that's what I wanted to do. One of the chapters in your book, you talk about differentiating. Um, you note it that it's how do I differentiate from my competition? I'm going to read one of the paragraphs and a couple of sentences from that book. You say differentiating is one of the hardest things to do in business in its truest form. Differentiating is transform is a transformational process, turning you and your business into a brand that shows your customers why your products or services have more value than their other options. You go on later in the chapter to say businesses that don't differentiate have a very, have a very hard time creating value. And then you have a four-step uh, four process for creating differentiation, which is step one is embrace, your, uh, is embrace your journey. My question is, can you expand on what you mean by differentiating and why it's important for entrepreneurs? Yeah. Um, if you think about the most successful business owners or the most successful entrepreneurs, they are unabashedly who they are. They're super vulnerable. Um, they really don't care if people like them, which maybe is a little bit narcissistic, but it's kind of true. Um, one of the examples I'm going to give you is, uh, again, I don't mean to be controversial with who he is, but um, if you think about Eminem and Marshall Mathers and being a business owner, he's built himself into quite an empire. And although a lot of people maybe don't like his message and think that he yells too much or that he's too angry or he hates women or whatever it is, um, he is who he is. And he's been able to build his brand around being authentically that. Kind of on the flip side of things, if you think about, um, you know, other like bigger companies, not necessarily in the entertainment industry, but if you think about like Amazon, for example, um, you know, Jeff Bezos is who he is. He's a super smart guy. 
Um, the story of starting it in a garage and selling books out of your garage and asking people for an investment into your garage bookstore and, you know, not making money for a long time and having a lot of people laugh at you to being one of the wealthiest dudes in the entire world today is who he is. That's the story. And I think people really understand the story. They love the value. They like the Amazon Prime two-day shipping. They get all of that. And that just the only way to do that is to continually remind yourself of why are we doing what we're doing and to be vulnerable, to be authentic. Don't try and be somebody else. If you're going to try and be somebody else, that person's already good at being them because they are them. you got to be yourself. In the next chapter, which is focusing, um, you go through several steps, um, eight steps to become a noise reducer. And one of those steps caught my attention. Um, because I think it's, it's something that every entrepreneur does not necessarily think of when they start their business. And I think they should at least, um, explore having this, which is step six, uh, get an accountability partner. And just from your book, um, you say finding someone to share this journey with, it's a key component of being a professional business owner, building a a successful business. Expand a little bit about what you mean by having an accountability, uh, accountability partner. Do you have an accountability partner? How long have you had one? And why is it so important as an entrepreneur to have one? Yeah, accountability partners. Sometimes people get the wrong impression because maybe that's like like a sponsor almost. And that's not really what I mean. Um, it's not like it's not like somebody who's like making sure you're not doing stupid stuff, although maybe that's part of it. It's more like you don't get stuck in your own head if you're forced to explain it to somebody else. If you have a partner, um, and I, I use the word partner, but honestly, it could be a mentor. It could be your spouse. It could be a consultant. Um, it could be maybe your network of contacts. Um, but it's somebody that you have to be able to be really authentically vulnerable with. You can't fake it with your accountability partner. If you do, it's not really going to work. And so uh, for me, I do have an accountability partner. Um, I have a, a life partner. Her name is Amy. And um, she's great. She owns a couple of businesses. We do a lot of business together. Um, she helps me stay focused. I help her stay focused. Um, we talk about our issues and struggles. We're building our businesses together. And although it's not necessarily always legally, like she's a partner in everything I do and I'm a partner in everything she does, like it's not necessarily that way. But we have this ability and connection to be able to discuss all these things and overcome a lot of our fears, stay accountable to our, our goals and the process of getting there. I remember talking to her about this crazy business idea I had about six months ago. And um, she's like, you know, Matt, like, of course you could do that if you wanted to, you can do anything you want to do, but that doesn't really align with what you said you wanted to do with your company. And you got to ask yourself which route you want to go, because if you try and do both, you are probably not going to be really good at either one. And it really, it was a great conversation. It caused me to like, have to like, really like take a step back and ask myself, like, why am I thinking about this crazy business idea? I got an opportunity to be a partner in a much bigger firm where I would be uh, a partner. I would be uh, on a salary. It was a very, very attractive salary. I'd also get profit distribution, but it wouldn't be my company anymore. And I was really thinking about doing it. It was a great 
financial opportunity. It was a great structure to plug into, but it just didn't align with what I want for my life. And that she helped me navigate that and talk to me about it. And if you don't have somebody that you can do that with, you need to find one. It's almost like having a BS meter, you know? Um, almost. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I was like legit thinking about doing this, this opportunity. I mean, the salary was insane. $300,000 a year. Um, I didn't even have to buy in. They were just going to give me equity because they really wanted my help. Um, it was an awesome situation, but it was working kind of for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I want to build. Yeah. I, I like helping clients as a consultant. Um, I don't mind projects for a period of time being kind of intense. I've got uh, a project I just landed this week. That's a six month contract. It's going to be almost full time working for this one company, but it's not as an employee. It's not as a partner. It's a very clearly defined contract. And that allows me to understand what we're doing. It's, it's great to have somebody just basically call you on your bullshit sometimes for mm -hmm. sure. Well, the difference there is you can walk away. I mean, you have a contract, but I mean, there's an end game. It's not, it's not in perpetuity. So you're not just, you know, giving up your, your goals or your dreams to have the short, you know, the, um, $300,000 project or $300,000 opportunity that would have been great in the short run. But my, just knowing you the way I know you, you're like, well, I can do a whole lot more than that. And I don't have the freedoms that come along with being a, an entrepreneur either. I, am I right? Exactly. So I um, like having lots of projects going on. That's one of the promises I've made myself. Um, I spent a short period of time working. One of my first consulting contracts was a, a project with an accounting firm. I spent a number of years there. And um, I remember when the contract was over, I hadn't really realized, because it was my first one, I hadn't really realized like what that actually meant. And that like, hey, like, should have been maybe saving your money because like now you don't have a project. But I remember like thinking to myself like, Oh shit. Like I was basically this person's full-time employee. I was on kind of a salary and like that's over now. And I don't have anything else going on. So that forced me to make a commitment to myself to never, ever, ever again have all of my eggs in one basket. I can have a lot of things that I can have a lot of the eggs in one basket, but it can never for me, that's my commitment is like, if you don't own it, you can't put all your eggs in that basket. You have to be a little bit more diversified. So that's why today, you know, I've got a handful of clients, you know, maybe 20 or 30 or so that I do regular work for on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it's on a fractional basis. So it's, it's not a full-time gig. You know, they're not paying, you know, millions of dollars, but it's, it's enough where it's spread out where if any one of those wants more help in a specific month, I can do that. My team can step up. We've got the ability to do that. If I've got new clients that want to come into the fold, I've got capacity for that too. Um, Cause I'm not tied into just one client where, you know, one of my clients leaves, it's not going to be financial bankruptcy. So we've gone through all the different steps of your history, starting your business, um, where you are today. And I'd like to have a little fun at the end of uh, each conversation, do some rapid fire questions. Um, these are just kind of silly questions, but it kind of, it, it gives the audience uh, an understanding maybe of, of some of your preferences and uh, we'll just have a little fun with it. So um, read a good book or listen to a podcast. 
uh, read a good book. Work from home or work from an office? Work from the beach. <laughs> okay. You're having fun with me. I can't I know. Fun with you. No, no. You threw me a curveball. Uh, slacks and a button-up or jeans and a hoodie? Um, jeans and a hoodie. Homebody or the great outdoors? Homebody, for sure. I don't really like camping. <laughs> football or – I know the answer to this question already, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Football or basketball? I don't think you know the answer to this question. No, we met playing basketball, and I love basketball. Uh, I played semi-professional football. That, one's, uh, that one surprises years. me, actually. Yeah. So, um, well, maybe not when you think about it, but I mean, I played tight end, so I take a lot of that stuff into basketball. But mm. I'm not 20 anymore, so I can't play football as much as I used to. So basketball is a little bit more enjoyable for the knees and the hips, although it's that's fading. But anyway, answer your question is football, but I can't do it as much anymore. Professional sports or college sports? Professional sports. Bitcoin or the stock market? Um, the stock market a thousand times. I think that it's on a tear right now. The uh, Bitcoin is anyway, but yeah. it, uh, that's not for me. I, I asked that question just kind of showing people that in the short term, one option might be really, really good. Kind of like you were talking about with that opportunity. Taking that opportunity might have been good in the short term, but long term, maybe not. Short term, Bitcoin might be a great opportunity, but you don't know where it's going to be tomorrow. And so the stock market's been proven. So that's why I asked that question. Um, vacation in the woods with a lake or on a beach? Uh, beach. 10 times out of 10. Rent a house or own a house? Oh, um, own a house. Lease a car or buy a car? And if you do, used or new? Um, I prefer to buy cars that are a few years old. Um, I don't really, yeah. I mean, Dave Ramsey kind of talks about that. Mm -hmm. A lot of smart people talk about that. You lose so much appreciation in those first couple of years. So I always buy my cars like three years old. It's a smart, um, it's very a smart thing mild, to do. But, yeah, smart thing yeah. to do. Favorite author? Oh man. Um, John Grisham, if I'm reading that kind of, uh, book. Um, but if it's, you know, a business book. Um, you know, there's, there's quite a few, I think, um, Simon Sinek is one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd probably say he's my favorite. Yeah, he's a smart guy. Might have said his name off. Uh, favorite food. Pizza. <laughs> favorite hobby. That's why I play basketball. So yeah. that I can eat all the pizza. I love that. That would be my answer as well. I love pizza. And, and is there, I mean, people say there's bad pizza. I don't think there's any bad pizza. There's just better versions of it. Right. There is bad pizza if you go to New York. <laughs> which by the way, which I didn't War. get into which I didn't get into about about the history of you writing your book, but you went to New York for three days, wrote the end of your book. That's how it that's how it came to be. So people can people uh, we'll get into that in just a second. Um but that's just a just a footnote in, in your history. Um okay, so more down your more down the path of what you do on a daily basis. Solo workout or with a partner? Um, I can work out with a partner. Um, I usually work out solo these days, but I would love to work out with a partner. Okay. Again, it's that accountability factor. I, and I agree for that particular reason for the accountability factor. I think entrepreneurs would agree that you have to have somebody accountability. Well, you talked about having an accountability partner so, or a, uh, accountability partner. So I think that's why I asked that question. Um, last two Popeye's chicken sandwich or Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Oh, Chick-fil-A. Come on. <laughs> They cook it. I think I've heard a rumor that they cook it in like pickle juice. But you got, so but good. you got to put the Chick Fil A sauce on it, right? I mean, I don't know if you do. Of but, course, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
uh, start a business with a friend or start a business with family? Oh, I don't do business with family. Okay. So a friend, uh, if anything. Yeah. Where can people find you on social media or on the web, Matt? Yeah, um, my website's uh, S, like Sam, V, like Victor, businessconsultants.com. Um, I do have a Facebook page, pretty active on Facebook. Um, social media and everything is, is really just all on Facebook. But um, the website, I've got a blog uh, on my website. Um, I put out a newsletter, so you can find my book. You can find the blog. You can read more about the team um, and what we do all online at thebusinessconsultants.com. Is there a link to your book uh, on your on your page there? There is. Okay, good. Um, well, Matt, I, I really do appreciate you joining me today. I appreciate the time and knowledge, learning about your journey to being an entrepreneur. Thanks for your time, and uh, stay well. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. That concludes this episode of The Journey, Small Business Success Stories podcast. I hope you're able to take something away from today's episode. Be sure to check out other podcasts on the 511 Media Group Network, including Go Start It, the podcast to help entrepreneurs start and operate a small business. Until next time, do what you love and enjoy the journey.